So this morning we're getting to this, this uh, scripture passage where Jesus is traveling and going about preaching. It says the good news of the kingdom of God and he has with him his entourage, his disciples and then these, these women who are coming along also and they're supporting his ministry it says. Um, two things to kind of mention as, as we get started with this is uh, one, we are uh, talking about um, last week and this week just talking about generosity and looking at some profiles of generosity and if, if you um, say, man, we always talk about money in this church, then that means it's your first time here uh, because we very rarely ever talk about money. We probably don't talk about it enough, you know, because Jesus talked about money a lot and generosity. And, and uh, um, so as we talk about generosity um, today and, uh, um, and you feel like this is something we talk about too much, then just start coming more and you'll find out that, <laughs> that it's been a year since you've been here. Uh, and also, we're talking about Mary Magdalene. Um, for many of you, you might hear of this character, Mary Magdalene, and you start thinking of like these sort of uh, hidden truths about Jesus, and Mary was Jesus' wife or girlfriend, had a baby together. Mary was like the closest disciple of Jesus, and all the other disciples were jealous of him. How many of you are familiar with these ideas of Mary? All right, like everybody almost. And... Uh, um, so, you know, who was Mary Magdalene? I just want to say, just straight up, uh, uh, this isn't what we're talking about, but I just want to put it out there. All of the Mary Magdalene hype comes from what's called the Gnostic Gospels, which came about 100 to 200 years after the time of Jesus. Uh, so the, the four, what we call the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, came right after, or shortly after, it was within the first generation of those who were following Jesus. And uh, the eyewitnesses account, eyewitness accounts. And then sometime later, 50 to 200 years, or 150 years after these were written then, uh, came this new wave of what was called Gnostic Gospels, which were intended to oppose Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were intended to oppose this new movement of Christians. And so when they were written, they were immediately disregarded as, as, um, uh, as false. And uh, uh, it, it's not until really most recently when with the, the hype around Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code and all this kind of stuff that it's kind of like come back and sort of it's exciting like, oh man, all these other gospels. They've always, the church has always seen them. Ever since the moment they were written, uh, they were not embraced as scripture. And actually when they were written, um, the church convened. Uh, this is before Rome, this is before the church was, you know, before the Council of Nicaea, Nicaea, all that, the church convened and they said, what is scripture? We need to define what scripture is. And so they, they looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They looked at these newer gospels that are being produced. And they said, how do we know what, what is scripture and what, what, is, what is false? Um, and they, they came up with a couple different tests. And one is, is it congruent with the rest of scriptures? Is it written by an apostle or an apostle associate? And have we seen it bear fruit in our worship services. And so they, they looked and, and they, they talked and they explored and they examined and they found that uh, the, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have borne uh, fruit in their ministries. They were written by apostles, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, I just want to put that out there. Uh, Mary Magdalene and Jesus were not a thing. Um, and uh, th that way afterwards, um, 
I won't have to uh, kind of go back and be like, oh, wait, 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 wait. No, nope. Mary, no, nope. not what you're thinking. No. All right. Cool. Everybody, everybody straight on that? Just wanted to straighten you all out. Just in case you were, had, uh, had some wrong thinking going on, we've got to always correct wrong thinking. Um, all right. So Mary is, a, is here following Jesus, Mary Magdalene. She's here following Jesus in Luke chapter 8. And um, it says of her that she has seven demons. That she, she was at one time possessed. She doesn't currently have them. She was at one time possessed with seven demons. And that number seven in the ancient Jewish world often refers to an indefinite number. So it's possible that this is saying that she not only had seven, she had an indefinite number of devils, of demons that were controlling her. Um, she was tormented, probably beyond our comprehension. Uh, she knew what it meant to be stuck in a world of sin. She knew what it meant to have her life and her body completely destroyed, to be insane because of the sin that is all around her, through her, in her, controlling her. She knew what brokenness is, life, is, is like. And some have speculated that maybe she was a prostitute. And there's no real reason people uh, have speculated that, but it's a speculation nonetheless. Maybe she was a prostitute. I don't know. Maybe she had a, some serious health issues that she was struggling with. We don't know exactly what her life was like prior to her encounter with Jesus, but we know that she was destroyed, that she was broken, that she was tormented beyond our, our comprehension to the point where when Luke wrote this, he found it uh, remarkable enough to where he included a parenthesis after Mary's name, not after everybody else's, but after Mary's name, this is Mary Magdalene. By the way, who's the one that seven, seven demons came out of her? Don't forget. Don't forget who she is. Don't forget where she came from. Don't forget what her life was like before her encounter with, with Jesus. Now we contrast this to Judas. Do you remember Judas last week? Sitting there at the, at the dinner party and, and uh, is, is angered at the generosity that is poured out on Jesus. We don't know much about Judas's life before Jesus either, but from what we do know uh, from Jewish history, Judas was most likely a pretty good guy. He probably was brought up in a good Jewish family. He probably memorized the Torah as a child. That's the first five books of the Bible. How many of you have memorized Matthew, or, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Brian, you have? Any, any others? Any, any major, how about the old, entire Old Testament? It was not uncommon for a young Jewish scholar to memorize the entire Old Testament. All right. Um, so Judas grew up reading the, the, the Bible every day, memorizing the Bible every day. He probably went through Bet Sefer, which is sort, their sort of elementary, middle school, uh, intense theological, biblical training, education. Uh, he was then hand-selected by Jesus the rabbi to be his disciple. So Judas is one of these guys that you would look at and say, man, pretty good dude. You know, if anybody's going to, uh, to have the favor of God, it's somebody like this. I think we could, in our context today, we could say this is somebody who was 
born and raised in a Christian home, conservative Christian home, um, went to Christian school, was brought up in Awana, won all of the awards, right? Won the, the Bible Scholastic Award and the Bible Achievement Award and the Bible Memorization Award. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about my brother actually right now. <laughs> all of the, brought him all of the, the Bible trophies, Bible debate team, what else? Um, uh, the sword drills, won every sword drill. He was that kid. You guys ever do sword drills? For those of you that grew up in church, like everybody go to uh, Matthew 10, 20, bam, go, sword drill, it's on. And he won every one of them. There's Judas, got it. Dang, Judas got it again. That, that Bible scholar. And he goes to Bible college, wants to become a pastor, right? This is Judas. This is a guy that we would look at and say, man, I, I, I don't live up to that. If anybody knows anything about God, it's him. If anything knows anything about, if anyone knows anything about theology, it's this guy. If anybody has the favor of God and God looks at this person and says, man, good, good person, I can use him. It would, be, it would be this guy. It would be Judas. And around Judas are these, um, uh, these unlikelies. Mary at the dinner party. This, this woman who is uh, known as a sinner to the point where the disciples look at Jesus and say, do you know who's anointing you? Do you know who you're around? Do you know who you're associating with? She's, she's a sinner, and she cracks open this expensive bottle of perfume, perfume, remember last week, and she dumps it over Jesus' feet? She is the unlikely. And here's Judas, who's the likely, who gets upset about that. And then there's Mary here in Luke 8. And by the way, these, this may or may not be the same Mary. It's debated. It'll be debated and, until we die and meet Mary and ask, by the way, were you at the dinner party? You know, like, we don't know if it's the same Mary. Uh, I kind of tend to believe it is the same Mary. Um, some scholars that I really respect would disagree with me, but that's fine um, because I'm right. And, uh, I know, and, I, and I know that I'm right. You know, it's okay when somebody disagrees when you know that you're right, right? <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so there's this, this Mary here. Whether it's the same Mary or not, similar story. She's unlikely. She's broken. She knows sin. She has been filled with demonic influence. She has lived a life entirely for uh, uh, worshiping um, her, her, either herself or um, some sinful idol. She, she knows destruction. She knows what it's like to be completely unlikely. And, we, and if we looked at her, we would say, if anybody is not accepted by God, it would be somebody like this. It would be somebody who has, did not grow up in a Christian home. Um, their broken family, they uh, ended up at, at 12 years old, start, they were sniffing glue, and uh, then they got into some other drugs and then started having sex with a hundred different people and now they're standing on the street corner prostituting themselves. If anybody's not right with God, it's somebody like this. Somebody who's just broken. Somebody who knows what it means to be driven and controlled by, by sin. So who is Judas? Judas is this dude who lived a pretty good life. Um, he followed Jesus for two years. I mean, every morning he was waking up and literally Jesus Christ is in his presence. I mean, imagine this. 
He's with Jesus, and for two years, he follows Jesus and does whatever Jesus does. He eats whatever Jesus eats. And so what did Judas think? What did Judas do? Here's what I believe Judas thought. He had given Jesus so much of his time, he is now owed something. He has given so much, God owes him something. And so Judas has this belief that, that through following Jesus, uh, he's, going, he's going to achieve um, the, the, the kingdom on earth, quote unquote, here, here right now, and which for, in his mind, I believe, I think, from what we see in the passages, that means for him wealth, it means for him eternal, or, or earthly security, earthly possessions, earthly treasures. And so he's here following Jesus, and he's like, he, I, I think he believes God owes him something. And why I believe that is when he realizes that it is not going to happen, and he's not going to get what he wants, and he sees that Jesus is not thinking the way he is. And he sees the world slowly start to come around Jesus, come down on Jesus. What does Judas do? He betrays, betrays God. And what does he get? Nothing. Now, Mary, uh, on the other hand, what did Mary think? What did Mary do? See, because this isn't an issue of like whether or not it's we should want to get something from God. This is an issue of like, what are we looking to get from God? And why are we looking for that? And how do we think we're going to get that from God? So Mary is completely opposite. What did Mary think? What did Mary do? What I want to do to, to answer this question is turn with me to John chapter 8. Um, it's the, next, the next book over, John chapter 8, verse 3. We're going to look at another story here in John 8. Um, this is another woman who some people have believed might be Mary Magdalene as well. I don't think this woman is, but again, it doesn't really matter so much. But here's another woman who also knows what it means to be stuck and condemned in a life of sin. Verse 3 in John chapter 8. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the, law of Mo in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this as a question, as a trap, in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now, and leave your life of sin. Let me ask you guys this, and I want your feedback. What did, what did this woman receive from Jesus? What did she get from Jesus? Off the top of your head from this story. Grace. Grace. She received grace. What else? 
A second chance. What else? Mercy. Mercy. Redemption. Redemption. Acceptance. Acceptance. Instructions. Instructions. Yeah, that's true. What else? She got to survive. Survive. Survival. She's still alive. <laughs> Life. What else? Protection. Protection. A new life. A new life. And see, these are all foundational sort of things that she received from Jesus. Foundational. Like, why is it that we have addictions? Why is it that we turn to this thing over and over and over again? It's because we don't have these, this stuff right here. This is like the foundational kind of, uh, kind of things, the stuff that we need. And when we get these things, it changes everything. So she's there on the ground about to be stoned for her sins. If, if anyone is uh, going to be uh, not accepted in their, in their eyes, in their thinking, if anybody's going to not be accepted by God, it would be a woman like this who's caught in adultery. The law says to stone her. She's, she, in her mind, she will never be accepted by God. Who knows? She might just be laying there, not even fighting back, not even arguing, because she believes and she knows that she deserves it. This is what's, <clears throat> this is what's right. This is my punishment. I will never be accepted by God. I will never enter into the kingdom of God. I deserve every one of these stones that's about to hit me. And there she lies. And, and, and then she has this encounter with Jesus. For those of you condemned in your sin, you, you, you know that you deserve every one of those stones that you're about to be hit with. And then there's this encounter with Jesus that changes everything. He steps in and he says, whoever has no sin, cast the first stone. Whoever has no sin, who hasn't sinned, go ahead, pick it up, throw the first stone. And the ancient religious people, they're living in this system which, uh, which tells them, a system in which they believe that their acceptance by God directly relates to what they do. And so if they live a holy life, if they think right, if they act right, if they worship right, if they dress right, if they eat right, if they um, uh, read the right things, if they do all the right, the right stuff, then they will be accepted by God. So in their minds, they're thinking that they are pretty much accepted and she is pretty much not accepted. And she will never be accepted. So we go back to Luke chapter 8 verse 1. And what's Jesus doing as he's traveling? He's walking around doing what? Proclaiming the good news. Proclaiming the good news. Exactly. Somebody say good news. Good news. Thank you. He's proclaiming the good news. Now, what's the good news? The good news is this. Their system isn't right. What they're thinking isn't right. And Jesus has come and his reign is being established. And where there is condemnation, there is now grace. The good news is this. Is that because of Jesus, there is the free and full removal of all sins. 
and there is justification, which means that you now are made right with God. Before you were wrong with God, like this woman caught in adultery, you were wrong with God and you deserved every one of those stones. And because of Jesus, there is justification, which means you are right. You have the goodness of Jesus placed upon you. And you are now right with God. That is good news. And so Jesus is going around and he's proclaiming the good news. He's announcing these, these doctrines and these mysteries of God that have, have existed since time began with Adam and Eve and the fall. And, and, and what we're seeing now is the redemptive plan of God being unfolded in the life of Jesus. And he is preaching this good news to the, to the entire world around him. We cannot save ourselves. Religion is as, is as damning as any sin. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And just as much as the woman caught in adultery deserves every stone, what Jesus is saying is the religious people do too. But everything is now changed. The redemptive plan of God is being unfolded. And where we cannot save ourselves, Jesus steps in. And he writes in the sand. And who knows, maybe he was, he was writing the sins of all the Pharisees standing around, right? And maybe drawing lines like lust, line right here. Stealing, line right over here. Who knows, I don't know. Maybe he just drew one line like, don't cross it. He steps in, he stands up, and he's hitting people with the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, which says there is a new order. Where, where our sin has condemned us. Where our sin has condemned us, and rightly so, something has changed. Let me ask you this. Who could have thrown the first stone in that crowd? Who is the one person who could have thrown the, thrown the first stone? Jesus. And he didn't. What does that say? I mean, is this not good news? The one person standing there who had no sin, his orders, those who have no sin, throw the first stone. Jesus could have picked up the stone and one at a time beat her to death and he would have been right and just in doing so. But it's good news. And so in Luke 8.1 we see Jesus walking around and he is preaching. It says the good news of the kingdom of God and Mary knows Going back to Mary here, Mary Magdalene, she knows that this is good news. She knows that this is good news, right? Because she, she, she going back, she, she had seven demons. She was controlled. She was filled with a life of sin and destruction. And then she had an encounter with Jesus. And everything changed. I think of um, the, the, the Apostle Paul. He's, he's killing and locking up Christians, right? This, this, this big time, big shot soldier. 
And he's on his way, on the Damascus Road, on his way to, for that very purpose, to lock up Christians, to persecute them. And all of a sudden, in an instant, he's on the ground. His horse is probably going crazy. The, his men are all around him wondering what just happened. And Paul's eyes are now blind. Why? Because he had an encounter with Jesus. He had an encounter with Jesus and it completely changed his life. And then we look at Judas. The dude lived with Jesus for two freaking years. And he never had an encounter with Jesus. He heard the, the messages. He heard the teachings. He, he read the scriptures. He could tell you everything. He could, he could quote any kind of theological doctrine to you. And he never had an encounter with Jesus. That changed his worldview. That changed his life. He never had an encounter with Jesus like Paul did. Never had an encounter with Jesus like Mary did. He never had an encounter with Jesus like some of you have. So what did Jesus, Judas think? Think that God owed him? Think that he should get something now? Get some kind of prosperity out of this? What did he do? As a result, he didn't see uh, what he, he didn't get what he wanted, so what did he do? He betrayed God, and what did he get? What did he get? Nothing. He got nothing from God. Now, in contrast, Mary, what did, what did Mary think? What did Mary think? This, this gift of uh, being made right with God is something that she never deserved. I would place money on this I know you're not supposed to bet in church, but I just did. I would place money on this. That Are you not supposed to bet in church? I don't know. I just said that, but I don't know. Maybe not. I, I would imagine that Mary, in the midst of her sin, when she was filled with these demons, maybe an indefinite number, or the women who, woman who was caught in adultery, or Mary, or the Mary, the other Mary, whoever she was, Mary of Bethany at the dinner party, these women uh, would have never imagined that they would be right with God. It wasn't on their radar. They weren't trying to do anything because for them, life was over. And so here's Mary. What did Mary think? Mary, I believe, thought that she had no chance. She, had no, she didn't have enough goodness to move beyond the problems of sin in her life. She had no chance. And so what did she do? Or, or Let's go on. She had no chance, but then she had this encounter with Jesus, right? And so then what did she think? Well, she thought that God's uh, um, favor, the fact that God uh, is, that she is made right with God and that God loves her is completely grace. It's completely a gift that she did nothing for. And so then what did she get? Everything. Justification. She was made right with God. Holiness. And so what did she do? Look at uh, verse 3 in Luke chapter 8. Verse 3. Joanna, the wife of Susa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, the many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Mary's life was once dark. Her life was once broken and destroyed. 
And because of her encounter with Jesus, because of her interaction, her, Jesus hit her. Because of that, her life was moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. And Jesus made in her something beautiful out of dirt, out of nothing. Judas was greedy because he never really got anything from God. <laughs> Judas never got anything from God. He never understood the gospel. He never understood the good news. He never really understood the message and the meaning of Jesus. He never understood why everything had to be about Jesus. He never got it. And therefore, he just wanted more for himself. Therefore, he was greedy. He was looking for something more. Mary, on the other hand, got everything. And we know that those of us who have experienced this good news, when we're hit with this, and we all of a sudden realize that the creator of this world is looking at us and loves us and sees the very goodness of Jesus upon us that changes everything about us, that we, we are given that everything we can ever need and everything we, were, we can ever want. And then because of that, Mary's response is generosity. Because she believes in the good news of Jesus. She believes in that, that what Jesus is going about and saying is right, is good, is needed. She's experienced it herself. She's had her own encounter with Jesus. And so she feels then, she believes that this, that this message is worth, worth supporting. The good news changes everything. The gospel changes everything. It heals marriages. It uh, removes us from the power of addictions, from the power of uh, destructive patterns of, of lying, of uh, pornography, of uh, drugs, alcohol, you name it. The gospel changes everything. It gives meaning to life. We are going through life and we ha we're drifting. We're not sure why we exist. All of a sudden we're hit with the gospel and everything changes and we now have meaning. It gives us courage. It gives us confidence. It gives us everything that we need and long for and want. It is complete transformation for us. And Mary understood this. Mary experienced this. Mary had her own encounter with Jesus. She saw how beautiful things are created out of nothing. And for that, she gave everything. For me, I was uh, proud, uh, I was arrogant, yet at the same time, extremely insecure. I was angry. I was a hypocrite. Um, I could put on one face when I had, just had to go to church. I hated church. I hated everything about church. Um, my pastor, I liked my pastor because he used to play pro ball, but uh, that was about it. <laughs> like, I, you know, I thought pastors were the most boring, and they are. We are, we are boring. My uh, children tell me that all the time. <laughs> and um, but I, I hated everything about church. And, and you know what? I remember I, when I was in high school, this hit me, that I hated the fact that God had to be number one. It, uh, like, I, I admitted that to myself. I remember it was a conscious thing. And I grew up in a Christian home, so I grew up, like, kind of hearing a lot of this stuff. And I hated the fact that I couldn't do what I wanted to do 
and have God on the side. I really, I loathed that. I hated it. And as a matter of fact, when I thought about, when I would hear stories about heaven or what it's going to be like after all of this and, and how we're all forever and ever, and ever going to be worshiping God, I, I thought that is, like, I don't know if, I don't think I want to be there. <laughs> like, that is the most uh, terrible sounding place where all of the attention has to go to God and none of it gets to go to me. Because really, I wanted to be at the center. I would look at girls, all right? And there was, I went to a Christian school, and so there were some Christian girls that loved God. And you know, I was jealous of God, that they thought God was better than me. I mean, I honestly, I, and I consider myself a Christian this entire time, and I hated God. I hated him. Because if God is not number one in our life, if we do not completely fall under his kingship and under the reign of Jesus Christ and say, everything about me is yours, then we are hating God. There is no middle ground. And I hated God. And then I had an encounter with Jesus. And now I, I, I can find no greater joy in my life than to focus the attention on God, than to give the glory to God, than to direct praise to God. I find it, there's no greater joy there's so much more meaning there. There's so much more significance there. There's so much life there. See, for us, when we talk about what it means to be a church and to even financially support this church and the ministry of the gospel around the world, what it means to create a church to, to, to uh, serve the city and the neighborhood, we know, we already know, many of us, now some of you may not, but many of us already know this kind of transformation. Many of us have already experienced this encounter with Jesus. And we know how God has taken us from brokenness. He's taken us from darkness, the kingdom of darkness, from sin, from the destructive patterns of our own lives. And he's taken us from that and he's put us into the kingdom of light. And we know that God, that we, we were nothing. We were dirt and God took us and turned us into something Beautiful, not because of anything that we did, not because of who we are, but because of something Jesus did for us. And so we want the same thing for the world around us. Amen? For the city around us, for the people in our neighborhood. We want that for our neighborhood, that, that, that the world may know Jesus, so that they may have an encounter with Jesus. And that's what drives us. That's what drives our generosity. That's what drives everything that we do. To whom much has been given. I've been given so much. I've been given so much. It's the least I can do to, to push that forward, to give glory to God and push that forward and, and, and put on display, show off who Jesus is.